Galatians 5 and 23, 22 and 23, and I'll just go ahead and read it as we're going there. Through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. Uh, tonight we're looking at the last character trait the Holy Spirit will produce in our lives. And the, in the King James it says temperance. Uh, it's, it's also translated as self-control in other places and most other translations. That's how they have it worded, so that's what I'm going to go with. Self-control, it means to be in control of ourself. It means to be disciplined, uh, controlled, to be... Restrained, self-restraint. Basically, self-discipline, self-controlled, self-restrained. It is the ability to choose to do what is right despite a desire to do otherwise. Of all the characteristics we'll look at in the Spirit, self-control is, is probably the one that affects our life the most. Because there is no area of our life, whether it would be a spiritual or a, or a physical area, where self-control is not needed. Um, We need self-control in in all aspects of our lives. And and that's one reason the lesson you see, it's got so many points, just the general truths about self-control, because the Scripture says a lot about it. For instance, Scripture says self-control is necessary for obedience and holiness. Which makes sense. Self-control is, in part, the ability to choose to do what is right, despite a desire to do otherwise. Therefore, it would be, we can see why it would be critical for self-control so that we could obey God and we could live a holy life. Because no matter how, how much we love the Lord, how devoted to Him we are, no one ever always wants to be obedient and holy. Right? All of us are tempted to do things we know we ought not do. All of us are tempted towards things that are not right. And so we need self-control in order to choose what is right. And, and that's what the Bible says. Peter says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, it always makes me laugh when I read it, but gird up the loins of your mind, it basically means prepare yourself to think clearly. Right, So prepare your mind so that you can think clearly about whatever's going on. And then we're told to be sober. And to be sober there, it means to be self-controlled in our mind and in our behavior. We're not to give ourselves over to self-indulgence, but to be self-controlled in all areas of our lives. He goes on to give us reasons why we are to be sober-minded, why we are to think clearly and be self-controlled. First is, we are God's children. And as God's children, we are to be obedient children. Right? And in the picture, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust and your ignorance, is there was a, a way that we lived before we were adopted in the family of God. We, in that time, we didn't know God. We didn't have a relationship with Him. We didn't know God's will. And so we, we lived in a way that was contrary to that. But now, now we are God's children. Now we have been adopted into His family. Now we know. We know what God wants. We know what God wills. Therefore, we should be obedient. And that is always going to require self-control on our part. The second reason we're to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober is because we are to be holy as our God is holy. Again, as God's children, we are to, in, in some ways, reflect His character and His nature to a lost and a dying world. 
There are people all around us that will make decisions about who God is and what God is like based upon our lives. And so we are to be like God as much as we can. And that means holiness. Right? So we, we must be holy in all manner of our lives. Right? So holiness there, that's not just in like a spiritual thing, but there is no area of our lives where we are not to be holy. We are to do in every situation, in every aspect of our lives, the way that God would want us to do, the way that God Himself would do. And that requires self-control. Now, obviously we all want to get to the point in our lives where we are not tempted by sin any longer. Where our greatest desire at every point in every aspect of our lives is to do God's will and to be holy. That would be wonderful if sin, we got to a place and sin no longer even was a temptation. The reality is, as long as we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, and as long as we are in this body, there is always going to be a pull towards sin. Now, as we grow, that pull may lessen. And as we grow, what pulls at us may change. But the reality is, the pull will always be there in one way or another. So, we can't wait and say, well, I'll resist sin when it's no longer appealing to me. And we can't do that. We have to say... God, I don't want this desire to be there. But as it is, I must then choose to be obedient to God and be holy. Uh, There is no way to be God's obedient children and to be holy unto the Lord without self-control. Again, though, that makes sense, right? I mean, self-control is the ability to choose to do what's right despite the desire to do otherwise. A person who cannot... Not do whatever they want, right? A person who is given to always, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. If I want to act on it, I'm going to act on it. That person will never be obedient and holy unto God. Right? Self-control is absolutely necessary. Right? Secondly, and this is probably the most hopeful aspect of it, self-control is fueled by grace. Right? One of the, the great facts about God is He never tells us to do anything Without giving us the ability to do it. That that is wonderful. Right? That our God, He says, He gives us lots of commands. These are the things you're supposed to do. But with each command, there is the ability or the power to do it. Right? Notice what we find here. It says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the grace that God gives us, it forgives our sin. And often that's kind of where we stop. We stop, grace forgives my sin, but then it leaves me as it found me. That's not what we find in Scripture. The grace of God forgives our sin, and then it actively works in us to teach us, to guide us, to empower us, to enable us to do all the things God would have us to do. Right? So notice what it says specifically in this passage. So the grace has appeared to all. And it, it teaches us. Right? So grace is a, a teacher at work in our hearts and in our lives. And it teaches us first to deny ungodliness. And the word for ungodliness there used, uh, it basically means anything not like God. It means something that does not honor God in word or deed. Something that would violate God's commandments. Ungodliness would be living as though God didn't exist or living in a way that took no thought to what God's will or God's want would be in a particular situation. Right? So to live an ungodly life, it would be to live in sin or to just do whatever we want to without taking any thought to what God wants us to do. 
Now that, again, that's the natural way people live apart from Christ. But once we're saved and the grace of God begins to work in our life, that grace begins then to teach us. No, that's not right. Deny that desire. Deny the want to do that thing. Yes, you want to do it, but don't do it. But the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. It also teaches us to deny worldly lusts. A worldly lust would be a desire for something that either... It would be a desire for something that would either be outside the bounds of Scripture, right? What God has said, do not, you can't do this, and so we desire it. Or it would be a desire for something God has said, you can have this, but within these perimeters that I have set forth. And so it would be a desire for something that is God-given and right, but in a, a way that God has said we cannot take part in that. Right? So it may be a desire to look away or to look when we should look away. It, it may be a desire to do something when we know we should resist. It may be a desire uh, to get more when we should give more. It may be a desire to act selfishly when we should act sacrificially. It may be a desire... To, for recognition for men when we should be worried about the recognition of God. It could be any number of things. But whatever the worldly lusts are that, that appeal to us and attack us, the grace of God teaches us, no, don't do that. Don't give in to that. Don't look at that. Don't think on that. Don't act that way. Don't do those things. And denying that worldly lust, it requires self-control and the grace of God teaches us this sort of self-control. But it also teaches not only the negative, but the positive. It teaches us to live soberly. right? And soberly, again, is that same sort of an idea of being self-controlled and self-disciplined in our lives. right? It is to restrain our desires, our lusts, and our appetites. Right? And, and as we live sober, as we live self-controlled, the Holy Spirit or the, the grace of God is also going to teach us to live righteously and godly. So in essence, what we find here is that in the natural world, there's going to be a desire to do one thing. But the grace of God that is within us, that work in us, it's going to say, no, deny that and do this instead. Right. So that's a great kind of a great picture because the grace of God doesn't just teach us no it says, not this, but this. Right? It teaches kind of the, 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 the principle of replacement. It's not just that don't do this, but instead of doing this, do this instead. The grace of God is actively at work in us. So it's teaching us, it's guiding us, it's discipling us, it's enabling us. And that is a, a wonderful truth. Right? Because self-control is hard. Self-control in any area of life is hard for most people. And if we try to live the Christian life just knuckling it under, I'm going to make myself deny this and make myself do that. The, the human will is strong and we can do that for a while, but we cannot do that indefinitely. Eventually, our wills will fail. And God has said, I know that about you. So the grace that I'm giving you, it'll teach you. It'll empower you. It will help you do what I'm wanting you to do and resist what I want you to resist. So self-control is necessary for obedience and holiness. Self-control is fueled by grace. Self-control is necessary. Uh, control our minds. Now, there's actually three verses in, all in James 
I only have two on the paper because the third one came to my mind after I'd already printed the paper out. But as I was thinking about this and saying, I realized, you know, in my life, the majority of the problems I've ever gotten into have been because I talked when I should have kept quiet. I would say, especially like when I was in the army and I was really young and dumb, 90% of every time I got in trouble in the army had to do with me talking when I should have just kept my mouth shut. Uh, And and that is a self-control issue. Self-control gives us mouth control. Right? Here's what James says. First, he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now, think how much self-control is necessary to fulfill that verse. Right? Swift to hear. Now, notice the next is slow to speak and slow to wrath. So, we're talking in a, not in a, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I need your help. Can you... Kind of give me some guidance. Most of us are swift to hear in a time like that, right? But in that time, time we don't necessarily need the guidance to be slow to speak and slow to anger. So this isn't speaking of necessarily somebody coming to us for counseling, needing our help. This is human interaction. This is in a conversation with someone. This is in a time where I'm tempted to run off at my mouth and I'm tempted to act in my anger. Right? And so in that moment, what do I have to do? I have to be swift to hear. Now, again, for me, if you were to come to my office and say, hey, I just want to talk to you, I am very slow to speak, very swift to hear. If you and I get into an argument about something, it's not necessarily going to be that way, not naturally. It is very, very hard for me in a moment like that to be swift to hear, to shut up and to listen to someone else's point of view, when I know in my mind and my heart they are wrong and I am right, it's difficult. And yet it takes self-control, and that's what I have to do, to shut my mouth and listen. Uh, And then as I listen, of course, again, I don't know how you are, but with me, listening is hard. I talk for a living. I don't listen for a living. So as I talk and as I'm with someone and they're talking, I think responses. No, that's wrong. No, no, that point, you're way off there. Oh, that's just crazy that you'd think something like that. And so I'm, my mind is not listening. It's coming up with responses to, to argue them, to point them. You're wrong. This is not right. You know, whatever. And so to, to listen and stop and not give my point, to not say the things I want to say and then not be angry, that requires an intense amount of self-control. Self-control is necessary for tongue control. But this is interesting. And this would be something we probably may not have thought of. But do you know what is the the number one thing the Bible says? If you use self-control in this area, you will be able to have self-control in every other area. It's not in eating. It's not in soul winning. It's not in prayer. It's not in Bible study. It is in talking. But look, look at what James goes on to say in later chapter. For many things we... We offend all, right? So we we all make a lot of mistakes. But notice the next part. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Right? So we all make a lot of mistakes and we all offend people and do things we ought not do. But he says, if someone is able to not offend in the word, they're able to keep control of their mouth. Woo! That's someone that's close to Jesus. And they can keep their whole body 
under control. Now James goes on to give an illustration. He's like, the tongue. I mean, that's so small. How can, how can my tongue have that much power over my life? Or having self-control over something that small have control over that much? Well, he goes on. And he says, behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us. And we turn their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Right? Now, the first picture is that of a horse being guided by a bit. Now, I'm not a horseman, and I don't know how much the average horse weighs, but I've held bits in my mouth, and I know a horse weighs more than a bit. A horse is larger than a bit, yet you put the bit in the horse's mouth, and you can control it. It'll go where you want it to go. It'll stop when you want it to stop. It'll go when you want it to go. The second one is that of a ship. Right? The rudder that guides the ship, while larger ships have larger rudders, they're still tiny in comparison. Uh, one that I saw, the Queen Mary, it has three acres of recreational space on the ship. The anchor weighs as much as ten average size cars. And yet a, average, yet a, a relatively small rudder directs the ocean liner out in the middle of the waves and turns it wherever it needs to go. A little bit can control a big horse. A little rudder can control a large ship. And if we can control the little tongue, we can control the larger body. And that's I mean that's that's huge, right? Getting self-control in every area of our life, in a lot of ways, according to James, it begins by getting control of our mouth. Getting control of what we say, when we say it, and how we say it. And James says, if you can get control of your tongue, and you can be swift to hear, and slow to speak, and have that kind of control over your tongue, you're going to be able to control all areas of your life. And all of that, again, it just boils down to self-control. Self-control is a mark of a wise person. A scripture often makes a comparison between the wise and the fool. One of the ways it does this is in regard to self-control. Right? A familiar verse, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth till afterwards. But fools have no self-control. So they can't control their feelings. They can't control their emotions. They can't control their words. So when they get angry, they will yell, they will scream, they will just make sure everyone knows they're angry. Right? Whatever feelings are in their heart, whatever thoughts are in their mind, they fly out of the mouth of the fool. But the wise person knows. Not every thought needs to be spoken. Not every issue in our heart needs to come out. Or at least not right now. At least not in that way. And the wise person is able to keep himself under control. Despite the desire to speak it. Despite the anger, the hurt, or whatever he may feel. They're able to control themselves. So wisdom is, or self-control is a characteristic of a wise person. But scripture not only tells us some truths about self-control. It, it tells us what happens when we lack self-control. Right? So, we are helpless without self-control. 
Right? We are helpless without self-control. Self-control is necessary to be able to do really anything in life that we need or want to do. Proverbs says, a, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. Now, in ancient times, a, a city was only as safe as its wall was sturdy. It was the first and best line of defense against invaders. A city without a wall was like a sitting duck waiting for invaders to come and conquer it. And Solomon says a person who has no control over his spirit, no self-control, is just as helpless as that person, or as that city without a wall. Right? And, and they're waiting just on something to come along and, and destroy them. Right? Come along and control them. Right? Because, again, think about all of the issues that we need self-control with. Do we need self-control with anger? Probably. So what if I have no self-control? That means I'm going to be an angry person. I'm going to be the kind of person that when I'm angry, I lash out at whoever is around me. Right? It's going to be the mouth. It's going to be with temptation. And, and again, self-control is not just about spiritual things. What if I want to, to get healthy? And I want to kind of maybe start eating better and, and exercise. Nobody ever or nobody always wants to eat right and exercise. It requires self-control. You, go to, you want to get an education, you want to go to college. What does that require? Self-control. Because nobody ever always wants to go to college and do their work. You want to have a job and excel at your job. I mean, very few people always want to work really hard and be diligent on their jobs. You want to be faithful as a friend. I mean, let's just be honest. No matter how much you love your best friend, there are times when they call, you want to ignore it. And it takes self-control to do everything that we're going to do in life that has any value whatsoever. And without self-control, we are helpless. We are at the whims of our sinful nature and the whims of our desires and the whims of our emotions. And they will control us. And along these lines, without self-control, we will be conquered by sin without self-control. Right? Because part of being helpless without self-control is being helpless against sin. Proverbs says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Now, a person taken in his own sin... As it talks about, there is someone who is so entangled in his sin, he can't escape. It, it really it kind of pictures someone who has been wrapped up in something. Like, have you ever seen a, in a movie where someone falls into a net that's in the ocean? And as they struggle to get out, the more they struggle, the more the net wraps around them and the more they get tangled up in it. That's the picture. That the more someone falls into sin, the more they give themselves into sin, the more they get entangled in that sin, and the more difficult it will be for them to come out of it. Right? And they will be taken, and they will be held, and they will die. Why? Because they don't have instruction. But instruction, there in the King James, it's better translated as discipline. Right? Not instruction like, let me teach you what's right and teach you what's wrong, but discipline to say, 
I will do this, I won't do that. So the person who has no discipline, who has no self-discipline, no self-control, he will die in his sins because he will get trapped in them, he will get wrapped in them, and he cannot escape from them because self-control is necessary. You can't get out of sin if you won't stop the sin. And without self-control, you'll never stop the sin. Now, the context there specifically deals with sexual sin, adultery in particular. But it's safe to say the principle would apply to any sin. Sin promises freedom. But sin delivers slavery and death. Always. And if we do not have the self-control to choose what is real freedom over what appears to be freedom, that will be what will happen to us. A person without self-control will find themselves in bondage, enslaved to sin, and unable to get out. And the inability to get out isn't because sin's hold is so strong. That's not the point. Sin can always be broken by Jesus. Jesus can always set people free. The Spirit can always free us. Do you know what keeps that person bound in his sin? His lack of self-discipline. Because Jesus will set us free, but we still have to choose not to sin. The Holy Spirit will empower us not to sin, but we still have to choose not to sin. And if I have no self-control, I can't choose not to sin... I will stay enslaved. And it's not because Jesus failed. It's not because the gospel is wrong. It's not because the spirit isn't active. It's because dying without self-discipline, without self-control, without self-discipline, we will forever, forever be enslaved by sin. And then this one is the final one with this. The end times will be characterized by people with no self-control. Scripture has a lot to say about what will be like at the end of times. And part of what will characterize the last days will be people without self-control. Paul says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. Now the word King James translated as incontinent, it is a very strong word meaning lack of self-control or a lack of self-discipline. Here's how one of my commentaries defines this word. It means Undisciplined and uncontrolled, having no self-control or no power to discipline oneself. It is being given over to pleasure and indulgence, to passion and sexual craving, to lust and to lewdness. It is a person who cannot control his passion for food, sex, pornography, sensuality, drink, drugs, smoking, whatever. It is a passion that grips and enslaves a person till it becomes an unbreakable habit and a bondage. Again, it's every area of life. So the picture there it isn't just a lack of self-control again in sexual things necessarily. So the end times will be characterized by people who are indulgent in every area of life. They have no self-discipline about anything. No self-control about anything. Now, here's the thing. I don't think this means everybody at the end times will have no self-control about everything. 
Because that seems unlikely. I think what it will be better is, is that the culture at large will be characterized by lack of self-control. And one person will have a lack of self-control regarding drink, and another one with drugs, and another one with food, and another one with pornography, and another one with sex, and another one with TV, and another one with you name it. And it will be over and over and over. And so what you have instead of one person who has no self-control in anything, you have a culture of people. And if you were just to, to judge the culture, the number one characteristic of the culture would be indulgence. It would be, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do to excess. And that is a characteristic of the last days. So how do we develop self-control? First, we have to make spiritual growth a priority. Continual spiritual growth is a key to many virtues we are to have as Christians. In a familiar passage, Peter says, besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, Temperance, self-control, and to temperance, patience, which is also a form of self-control, and to patience, godliness. There's a lot there. It's a familiar passage, and we don't have a lot of time. So let me just say, first, faith isn't the end point. It's the starting point. We're to add to our faith. And we're to give all diligence to add to our faith. We have to put forth... A lot of effort is is kind of the idea of all diligence. Spiritual growth does not happen automatically. Just because someone has been a Christian for 20 years does not mean they have actual 20 years of spiritual maturity. I mean, just think about emotional maturity. Do you know anyone who's 20 and is no more emotionally mature than a 15-year-old? Do you know someone who's 30 and is no more emotionally mature than an 18-year-old? Sure we do. So just because they've gotten physically older doesn't mean they've emotionally matured. It's the same in the spirit realm. Just because someone got saved and they have stayed a Christian and been in church but haven't done the things necessary to add to their faith, that doesn't mean that even though they've been saved 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, that doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. It doesn't happen automatically. Spiritual growth happens as we give all diligence to add to our faith. And a part of what we add to our faith is self-control. So if I want to develop self-control, then I have to make sure spiritual growth is a priority in my life. Second is fully submit to God. Or could say fully submit to the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that a lot throughout this series, the Holy Spirit wants to produce this in our lives. And as long as we keep in step with the Spirit, He will produce this in our lives. And since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, it is God's will that this is produced in our lives. But all of this really is an act of submission. And that's what's hard. Because the key thing about submission is it's not really submission until I don't want to do it. Right? We don't submit to do the things we want to do. We just do those. But we submit to do the things we don't want to do. And so, if I'm going to have self-control, then I have to submit to God. And let Him produce this. Let the Spirit work this. And the key, well, the key, the key thing about this is, from what I can tell in Scripture and in life, God rarely forces this kind of growth on us. Right? I mean, God isn't going to grab us and shake us and make us be self-controlled. 
What God's going to do is, He's going to lay it out in His Word. Here's why being self-controlled and having self-discipline is important. Here's why you need it. Here's how you can have it. Choose. Choose. Choose to go my way or choose to go your way. And what He wants is He wants us to say, you know, God, your way is always best. You know so much more than I do. You are so right all of the time. And I am so wrong much of the time that, God, I'm, I'm going to choose your way. And right now, in this particular area, I don't want to choose your way. But because it is your way and you love me and your way is best, I will submit to you and I will do what you want me to do. And again, very rarely does God force a decision. In our Sunday school class, we just finished with Jonah. And God sort of forced Jonah to an extent, right? He was swallowed by the great fish. But when we look at the life of Jesus, did he force people? Rich young ruler said, hey, I want to follow you. Jesus said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor. Come follow me and have riches in heaven. And he turned and walked away. And Jesus led him. John chapter 6, Jesus said, you've got to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood if you want to be my disciples. The people said, oh, that's weird. We can't take that. We're, we're going to go away. And he led them. And then he looked at the twelve and he said, are, are, are you going to leave me too? Right? And so if we, he's laid it out. Here's what's best. And if we choose not to be self-controlled and to be self-indulgent, he will let us. It's the choice. It is that submission. Submission isn't being forced to. Submission isn't necessarily wanting to. Submission is saying, I, I don't want to. But your way is best. You love me. I love you. I will submit to your will and do your will. That's necessary if we want to develop self-control. And then finally, we'll do this quickly, focus on the prize. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Page 875 if you have a pew Bible. Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in the race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that's striving for mastery is temperate in all things, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an incorruptible, or a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore, so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I, I keep under, under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, just quickly, notice Paul talking about the, the Isthmian Games, which held once every two years. And he's using the, the illustration of a race to illustrate how we're to live our lives. Right? And, and some things to notice about this. First, they which run in the race, they all run. Right? So everybody that's in the, in the race, they all run. And, and the picture is, of course, they, they all run to win. Right? Because in the Ithian Games, there wasn't gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, honorable mention. There was you won... And then there were losers. I mean, that was it. The winner got a, a laurel wreath to wear on their head. And the losers all went home to try harder next year. 
And so they, they all tried as hard as they could to win that race. They put forth everything they had. But they didn't just put forth everything that they had on the race day. Notice what it goes on to say. Every man that is striving for mastery is temperate in all things. right? And, and what he's saying is, nobody just sets and watches Netflix all month, all year long. And then they show up on race day and try to run the race. In the days and weeks and months leading up to the race, they are self-controlled. They are getting up in the morning. And they are running and doing whatever it is that runners do to get in shape. And they did it. And they do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, up until race day. And they are temperate, which is self-controlled in all things. Right? Because... If you're going to run in a race, right, you, you, can't, you can't eat the pizza buffet every day. If you're going to, to run in the race, you can't stay up till 3 in the morning watching Netflix. If you're going to, to run in the race, you have to have control over every aspect of your life. You have to sleep a certain amount, exercise a certain amount, eat a certain amount, eat the right things at the right time, drink a certain amount of water. You have to do all of these things. And so he said they are self-controlled in all things so they can show up and run as hard as they can to get this crown. And only one of them is going to do it. Only one of them is going to win it. But they are all going to be self-controlled in everything for two years. And they are all going to run with all of their might in that race. And everybody but one guy is going home extraordinarily disappointed. Now they do it, he says, to receive a, a corruptible crown. Right? They didn't get gold medals. They got a laurel wreath that was really a laurel wreath. It was made from, from leaves that were taken down probably just a couple of days before. And they died and they wilted. Right? They didn't get to hang up on their wall forever and sort of stay there. They died. They did it, all of that, to obtain a, a temporary Crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Right? And what he's saying is his point is this if, if if they put forth that much effort and that much self discipline to win a temporary crown, and we are going to win an incorruptible crown, how much more should we be self disciplined? How much more should we Put forth the effort. How much more should we be temperate in all things? Because what we win is so much better than what they win that it cannot be compared. And if we all run, we all win a crown. Right? There's not just one crown for one Christian in the world. There are crowns for all of us if we will be temperate, if we will run the race, if we will keep our eyes on the Christ. Because that's what motivates us. That's what motivates them to do it is they want that place of victory. They want to be lifted up above their peers. They want that laurel wreath on their head. And they want everyone to see they won. And so they do all that they do with that day, that picture in their mind. And he's saying, think about the day when we stand before Jesus and He puts the crown on your head. Run for that. Run towards that. Put forth as much effort as an Olympic athlete does in your life so that you can win that crown in that day. Now, something I take from this is that we need to have a, 
a short-term view rather than a a long-term view. And and here's what I mean. If we take a a long-term view, it typically, at least me, maybe you're different, make us a procrastinator. And here's what happens. Let's say a diet. Maybe you've done this. You've started a diet or an exercise program only to, to cheat on your diet and then, or skip your gym and say, well, I'll make it up tomorrow. Right? This is not a big deal. I'm way off down there so I can miss a little bit here and there. But that's that long term. But if you say, today I'm going to, today I'm going to eat this way. Tomorrow's a whole different ballgame. I'm, I'm not even at tomorrow yet. I'm right here. Today I'm going to eat this way. Today I'm going to do my exercise. But that's that short-term goal that keeps us more disciplined and more faithful. It's the same way in the Christian life. If we look just, just towards that day at the end, and that's all we focus on, we'll have some derailments here along the way. And we'll say, ah, well, I'll make it up. I'll pray twice tomorrow. I'll read six chapters tomorrow. I'll give twice as much next week. I'll be extra holy this next three days. But if we say today... Today I'm going to be self-controlled and faithful to Jesus. Today I'm going to to do what needs to be done. And we go to the end of the day and we say, today I did it. We go to bed and we wake up and tomorrow it's a new day. That sort of daily faithfulness. It's what we've got to have. We keep our eye. This is we're, we're daily faithful for that day. But just right now, Today is the focus. Keep, we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. I, I was, and we're out of time. I think something that, if you look at, let's say in the 40s and the 50s, maybe even the 30s, Christians thought a lot about heaven back then. And they lived in life of going to heaven. And it affected how they lived. It affected what they did. But in our day, we don't, we don't do that as much. And I think it's affected us in a negative way. I mean, you, you think about the people who went through the Great Depression, the believers. They could suffer the Great Depression without giving up on God because they knew that this world was not their home. They had, a, as the song says, a mansion in glory, didn't they? So yeah, things down here, not good. There's a day coming. But we don't do that. Things down here aren't exactly the way I want. Well, God's failing me. God's not doing what He ought to do. I don't even know if I can believe in a God that lets bad things happen to me like this. It's because we don't understand what Paul said in Romans 8.18 that the suffering here cannot be compared to the glory of then. Discipline, self-discipline is hard. It's not fun. Nobody, well, I say nobody, very few people want to be self-controlled and self-disciplined all the time about anything, much less spiritual things that are difficult in life. And if all I'm thinking about is here, if my life, my world, my all is right here and right now, I will never be self-disciplined. But if I'm like the believers of days gone by, that I look forward to that day and I know that what I receive that day is far better than anything I give up in this day. I can be self-disciplined today because it will be worth it then. 
We have to learn to keep our eyes on the prize. We have to learn to think about heaven a little more. My prayer for this series that we've just completed is that it would be more than we just know more about love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. My prayer is that we would legitimately be more loving, more joyful, more peace-filled, more long-suffering, kinder, gooder. There you go, I'll use gooder, that's a good word. More faithful, more meek, more self-controlled. Because that's the point. These things should be ever-growing in our lives. So let's pray and ask God to help us, to fill us with His Spirit, for we would do the things that need to be done. So the fruit of the Spirit would be the character traits that people knew us by. Let's pray.